So it's one of our favorite moments in the day. It's when we pick up our little boy Andrew, who's almost two, from the early childhood ministry, and he sees us, whether it's myself or my wife or even our oldest son Caleb, he sees us, and with his little legs that are just learning how to walk, he toddles toward us, and he's grinning and arms outstretched, just ready to be gathered up in our arms. And it warms our heart. It's just a wonderful thing, except sometimes that's not what happens. Like I said, he's almost two. So any shiny object just might catch his eyes and halfway toward us, he turns and goes a different direction. The other day, my wife was holding him and I, I stretched my arms out. Andrew, it's so good to see you. Big smiles. And then as I went in for a hug, he turned and pointed at a, a flat, blank, white wall and said, Daddy! <laughs> Today, in our gospel lesson, we encounter a man who is face to face with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, beholding Jesus' love for him, and yet turns away. And we want to use this story to contemplate what it means to steward our heart, to manage the heart that God has given us so that it might be entrusted to him. So what do we know about this guy? We find out at the end of the story he has many possessions. If we were to read the parallel accounts in the book of Luke or Matthew, we would learn that he is a rich man, he is young, and he is some sort of a ruler, has some kind of a position of power in the community. He is used to being successful and taking action to get what he wants. He's used to living a life in a transactional manner. What must I do to get wealth? What behavior must I engage in in order to get the results that I want? So he comes to Jesus with the same mindset. What are the things I have to do to be successful in the spiritual realm? And he approaches Jesus with flowery language. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And most of us have heard the story. Jesus first calls him out on his choice of words. Why do you call me good? Are you just trying to butter me up? Do you actually have faith and believe that I am God? Or have you forgotten the condition of humankind? Have you forgotten that humankind, including you, is not good. Only God alone is good. And with this, Jesus sets the stage. And then he draws this man into a conversation about God's law. After all, it's a question about law. What must I do? And he says, you know the commandments. And he lists off the commandments from the second table of the law. Many of you remember that the Ten Commandments, of course, are, the, um, are a summary of God's law. And they're divided into two sections, or tables, we call them. The first table refers to the way we relate to God. And the second table talks about how we relate to one another. Loving God and loving our neighbor, right? Just a quick review for everybody. Nod, let me know that you're, you're with me. 
Um, so he lists the second table commandments. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. Do you notice one that is different from the way we usually recite the commandments? Jesus plays with the order a little bit, but where we would expect him to use the word covet. Remember the Ten Commandments all the way back to confirmation? Where we would ex expect him to use the word covet, he substitutes the word defraud. And I would like to think that he's poking the guy a little bit, just kind of uh, needling him because Jesus knows where this guy's heart is. And he knows that, that along with those possessions comes such a deep sense of coveting, of wanting what he does not have, wanting what other people have, that he is prone to even commit fraud in order to get it. Just needling him. <laughs> But the guy says, oh, oh, I've kept all of these commandments since I was a youth. And on the one hand, we could mock him. We could, we could make fun of him for being so incredibly, naively self-righteous. Are you truly saying that you have not committed a single sin since you were a youth? But commentators also point out that in common first century Juda Judaism, it was it was fairly common parlance to say, I've kept the law since I was a youth. If you have basically been faithful and lived your life in a way that you attempted to adhere to the law throughout your life. It wasn't that unusual to say, and it doesn't mean that he never, ever, ever slipped up. But he understood himself to be a good, God-fearing, law-abiding, scripture-obeying Jew. And then I love the next sentence. I have to admit, many times when I've read this text, I've glossed right over this. Jesus looked at him, and what does he do? He looked at him, and he does something. Do you all remember what this, the text says? Yes. He loved him. Jesus is not out to get him. Jesus has not ensnared this guy or set up a trap because he wants the guy to fail. The outcome where the man walks away is not what Jesus wants. Consistent with Scripture's reminder that God is not willing that anyone should perish, but that all should come to eternal life. Jesus loves him and he wants him to be part of the kingdom of God. But Jesus knows that you can't serve God and idols. He says to him, one thing, one thing you lack. Go, sell all your possessions, give the proceeds to the poor, then you've stored up treasure in heaven, and now you can come and follow me. So what do you have to do to inherit eternal life? What's the end result of Jesus' instruction? Follow me. The answer to the man's question is this. Follow Jesus. But in order to follow Jesus, the idols have to go away. Let me say that again. In order to follow Jesus, the idols have to go. 
So this cuts to the chase. The problem is idolatry. All this talk about the second table of the law, and he's so proud that he's kept it, he's missed the most important commandment, the commandment to love the Lord your God, to have no other gods before the one true God. Erdman's Bible Dictionary defines idolatry as uh, in this way. In the Old Testament, it's the worship of gods other than Yahweh, other than the one true God, especially through images representing them. But the New Testament extends the concept to include any ultimate confidence in something other than God. Putting your trust in anything else besides the one true God. So I think we're all clear on this, but just in case we're not, let me, let me be very clear. Jesus is not saying that every Christian, uh, everyone who follows him must give up all their possessions. Jesus knows where the idol is in this man's life. So he's saying to this man, your idol is possessions. For you to follow me, you have to give up that idol. He is not telling us all that we have to sell all of our possessions, but he is telling us all that we must give up our idols. So, what are your idols? Think back upon this past week, what are the things that have occupied your passion, occupied your thoughts, occupied your mind more than our Lord Jesus Christ? I suspect all of us could take inventory and go, oh, wow, I have some adjustments to make. Maybe even some repenting to do. What captured my mind, my imagination, my priorities, my heart in the past week? Those things that captured me more than Christ Jesus have become idols. So how do we bring them back into alignment? And the, you know, those idols can be a misappropriation of people in our lives, of priorities, of objects, and even of experiences. Often very good things that are gifts from God can become idols when they occupy too important of a place in our lives. So how do we give up our idols? Well, first of all, acknowledge them. Have that exercise. In your mind, sometimes with another fellow believer, be accountable. Listen to what other trusted people say. Sometimes our idols are a blind spot. Ask those difficult questions. What in my life it has an inappropriate priority in relation to Christ? Two, denounce them. Denounce those idols. Make a clear break with your former way of thinking, acting, and living. Third, replace them. A vacuum is not a very stable environment, is it? Something has to fill a vacuum. So if we empty our lives of idols and we don't fill them with anything, what will happen? Something will take their place. Something will fill it in. So why not fill that void on purpose? Why not fill that void with Jesus? 
Jesus, who is in the business of transforming hearts. Jesus, who bids each one of us come, follow me. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25, the prophet writes, predicting what Jesus will come and do, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove from, your heart of, remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. This is God's promise to those who turn to him. This is God's promise to his people that will be fulfilled through Jesus Christ. Dear friends, God changes hearts. When God puts our old nature to death and gives us a new nature in Christ Jesus, he gives us that new heart and he gives us the Holy Spirit within us. Then we are empowered in Christ Jesus to keep his commandments. We have been given his righteousness, his holiness before God, and given the power of the Holy Spirit in order to walk in his ways. God, in Christ Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, gives us all that we need to fill that vacuum, fill that void that was once filled with idols. This is what it looks like. The rhythm of being in God's word, of being in worship, of daily prayer, of confession and forgiveness. I know since I've been here I've talked about the Christian life as a rhythm. And that rhythm of word and sacrament, of prayer and of forgiveness is the way God fills that void and keeps us centered on and focused on and following him. It looks like healthy Christian fellowship, being with and being around people who build us up and who hold us accountable. When something shiny catches our eye and we begin, like my two-year-old, to toddle in the wrong direction, folks that can redirect us and bring us back. Sometimes this, this discipline of filling that void left from sin that we have turned away from looks like intentional, strategic work. Working on our difficult issues, our, our chronic sins with a trusted friend, with a pastor, with a counselor. Asking difficult questions like, what are the issues behind the behavior? What are the root spiritual and emotional problems that we need to honestly address? And how is God continuing through confession and forgiveness and through, through hearing his word, stripping away that old nature and replacing it with his mercy and grace and holiness and righteousness? And finally, I know in counseling and in addiction work, they talk a lot about replacement therapy, right? You know, if, you're, if you are trying to quit smoking, perhaps you put in a cough drop or do something else to replace that behavior. Um, you know, if you're, if you're trying not to eat too many Twinkies, perhaps you have raw carrots on hand or something else to eat, right? Well, Scripture talks a lot about putting away evil 
There are many places in Scripture where there are lists of things that we shouldn't do and that we are instructed to put those away, but then it doesn't just leave us there. It gives us character attributes and character qualities that we might replace them with. And I would suggest that in our Christian walk that when we put away sin, we actively work to replace the behaviors that God is calling us away from with his character. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, the Apostle Paul writes, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. He says, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. And you're not alone. He concludes his statement by saying, and the God of peace will be with you. So today, we're called to steward our hearts. And we do that by turning it over to Christ confessing our sins, giving up our idols, and following his command. Very simply, follow me. The instruction here is not that you have to try harder to keep all the laws. It's identify the idols, repent, put them away, and follow Jesus. This is the invitation. Jesus meets us again, anew and afresh today, invites us to put away the idols that, that constrain us and hold us back and mess up our priorities and invites us to follow him. Will we allow Christ to keep forming and changing our heart? Or will we, as the rich young ruler did, say, you know what? That's too high of a cost and turn and walk away. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you look at us. You come to us and you look right at us and you love us. And in your love, in your care for us, you don't want us to be entrapped in sin, entrapped in idolatry. You, you, out of love for us, make it possible through your Son, Jesus Christ, for us to turn away from idols, turn away from other things, and follow you. Most of us have been claimed in the waters of baptism as your children and empowered to do exactly that. I pray that this week you would empower us, instruct us, stir us up to turn away from any idols that would ensnare us and help us to follow you. Thank you for making that possible, for looking at us and loving us. In your name we pray. Amen.